Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for listening to this episode. The Russian war against Ukraine, and it is a war, drags on, with Russian President Vladimir Putin seemingly quite content to bomb hospitals, schools, women and children indiscriminately. Western reports say his ground game is not going as well as he might have expected, but certainly that does not mitigate Ukrainian suffering on the ground. At the same time the war continues, the competing wars of information and disinformation have heated up like burning coals. We now know that, for example, information that the average U.S. consumer, and I'm talking about U.S. news consumers now, the average information that they get isn't remotely similar to what the average Russian receives. More on that later. U.S. tech companies have thrown up roadblocks against Russian state-run media outlets, and Putin has responded, as we told you last episode, by passing a law that mandates up to 15 years in prison for spreading, quote, fake news. The info ante has been upped by accusations on the part of Russia that the U.S. is backing biological weapons laboratories inside Ukraine, a charge vehemently denied by both the U.S. and Ukraine. Here's the rub, though. Ukraine does, with U.S. backing, operate biological labs. There's a big difference, though, between biological weapons labs and biological labs. The Undersecretary of State, Victoria Nuland, acknowledged as much in front of a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing last week. She qualified it by saying the labs were for research, not weapons development. She also said, the, worst, the West, that is, is working with Ukraine to see to it that none of the research ended up in the hands of the Russians should they overrun any of those biological labs. Now, it's entirely possible they might. You never know. At this point, the war may not be going exactly as Putin has intended, but that doesn't mean that he's going to quit. It does not mean he's going to go home. It's not going to mean he's going to declare victory. He won't declare victory until he has achieved his end. And that, we know, is not yet. Now, the back and forth over this issue, and by the way, we ought to be clear about this too. The Russian accusations were picked up by right-wing commentators in the U.S. to project the notion that the U.S. and Ukraine were collaborating on developing biological weapons to use against Russia. Never mind those labs had been there since the end of the Soviet Union, which was 1991. The U.S. and Ukraine do acknowledge that the labs do have potentially dangerous pathogens, which could be a huge problem again, should they become the target of Russian shelling. The back and forth over these issues creates, in a nutshell, the competing narratives as to what's going on in the Ukraine. One of the more interesting aspects of this was played out on Fox News last week. It was about the same claims of U.S. and Ukraine biological weapons labs. And in this case, it was Fox News national security correspondent Jennifer Griffin. She debunked the claims of both Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, which, as usual, were put in the I'm just asking a question mode. It's very rare for a news person to refute assertions by the two stars of the Fox News universe. Yet, there it was. And by the way, this disinformation was spread as far back as 2020, before Putin had set foot inside Ukraine. The, this invasion slash war has made fools of several politicians, let alone media people. It was just 2019, three years ago, 
when Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio called Ukraine, quote, one of the three most corrupt countries on the planet, end quote. As recently as January this year, Republican elected officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Paul Gosser were urging restraint in dealing with Putin. Several have pivoted faster than Steph Curry in the paint. Remember, these are the same people who looked on approvingly as Donald Trump threatened to withhold military aid to Ukraine unless President Zelensky's government agreed to look into Joe and Hunter Biden's involvement with the energy company Burisma. Whoever said politics makes strange bedfellows was certainly not lying. And yet, as days morph into weeks and will soon morph into months, there are a few things we do know without calling Putin a psycho or otherwise trying to get inside his head, as many pundits are trying to do. One is, without, while sanctions against Russia may have been a body blow to his nation's economy, he has not stopped the invasion because of those sanctions, nor is he ready to declare victory and go home. Here's what he appears to be counting on. Us. The sanctions have yet to bite too seriously, but they will in the United States and elsewhere, certainly in Europe, and they're going to bite hard when they do. It won't just be energy where that pain will be felt. By the way, you should be aware that oil companies are in no hurry, certainly in this country, to quote, drill, baby, drill. Instead, funneling the money that they're making directly to investors. Anyway, the price of many things U.S. and Western consumers see as staples are going to climb, and people will be looking for someone to blame, as is their habit. Trust me, it won't be Putin, and that's what he's counting on. He figures the short-term thinking of the West will allow him to win what he sees as a war. And what will the West do if Putin overruns Ukraine? By then, it'll be way too late for a no-fly zone. Putin has made a joke out of diplomacy. Do we wait for him to go after a NATO country and then go to war? And two other questions worth asking, even if Western media has not asked them yet. One, is it true that support for the invasion has gone up inside Russia? There's some polling information that seems to indicate that it's gonna, it could be Russian disinformation. You don't know. But there seems to be increased support for Putin inside Russia which means that the sanctions aren't having that effect either. Is it true also that the Chinese, after sitting on the fence, have gone all in behind Putin? We may know this sooner rather than later. Up next, the price of gas is at a new high. Will it stay there or go up even further? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture, with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. The average price of a gallon of gas now stands at $4.30 a gallon, highest since the dark days of 2008. We all remember them. So what or who is to blame? It seems there are a number of factors. Even before the coronavirus pandemic, Price wars between producers saw the price at the pump decline. Then came COVID-19. As people stayed home, oil and gas prices continued to plummet, making some oil companies 
nervous about the possibility of bankruptcy. Then came COVID-19. And on the other side of the equation, then came the vaccines and relaxed rules in parts of the country. And people began to travel more as they are as we speak. Big Oil, meanwhile, has been a bit sluggish in responding to this increased demand. As mentioned earlier, as profits start to roll in, the money has been going to stockholders, not new oil exploration. And then the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Although only 3% of the U.S. crude oil consumption actually comes from Russia, its status as a major player on the world market has caused prices to spike even further. Sadly, this latest spike, 75 cents at the pump per gallon, causes real pain from commuters to truckers. President Biden says he'll do his best to mitigate the increases, but he doesn't have all that much wiggle room. And, as is usually the case, and as we said earlier, the public blames politicians for things like gas price hikes. And even though it doesn't hit every place in the country equally, oil and gas hikes also affect home heating costs. Again, politicians get blamed. In this case, the convenience scapegoat are those elected officials pushing for things like the Green New Deal, which might well have mitigated some of the increases had they been implemented a few years ago. Instead, some politicians, and you can guess who, are pushing for things like a return to fracking. They conveniently forget that Joe Biden has issued more drilling permits on public land than his predecessor, and a lot of environmentalists are not all that happy. Besides, the Washington Post's Philip Philip Bump, that is, has done an analysis showing that international oil prices drive prices at the pump, not domestic drilling. So, how long will these inflated prices last? Best estimates are, in view of Biden's curtailing of Russian oil imports, as long as the Ukraine invasion continues. That will drive prices high, and they will remain high. It also means that simplistic sloganeering will not have an impact at all. Keep that in mind when you start hearing it. While we're on the subject of simplicity, how about we take a look at a recent proposal from none other than Florida Senator Rick Scott. Not to worry, Mitch McConnell has already squashed the proposal, but it makes interesting reading anyway. Scott isn't just any old garden variety senator. He is in charge of the Republican bid to take the Senate back. And he has what he calls an 11-point plan to rescue America. That is what it's called. Seriously, what's in it, you might ask? A 10-year tax increase totaling $1 trillion. And guess what? More than half of that tax increase would be borne by households making $100,000 a year or less. And, as they say in commercials, that's not all. Scott's plan would sunset all federal legislation over a five-year period. The rationale, worthy legislation, worthy according to Rick Scott, would be reenacted. What could go under this plan? Well, let's see now. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and virtually every social welfare law passed over the last century. And believe it or not, Some elements of his plan are even more draconian 
than that. But I, I don't necessarily want to scare you with it. But trust me, he's got some plans that are frightening. Scott's insanity runs so deep that even McConnell, as I mentioned earlier, had to disavow it. This is a quote from Mitch McConnell. We will not have, as part of our agenda, a bill that raises taxes on half the American people and sunsets Social Security and Medicare within five years. And that is from Mitch McConnell. Believe it or not, Scott does have allies in Congress who back this foolishness. And even if it passed, Joe Biden, current president last I checked, would be standing by to veto it. No, rather than having any chance of passing, it's instructive to look at Scott's proposal as a window into the soul of the GOP. Republicans have been trying to find a way to get rid of programs they don't like for decades now. This appears to be from the Take Your Best Shot School of Policy proposals. Imagine a guy representing the state of Florida proposing a plan that could end Social Security? Is he kidding? Florida is just one state that has large numbers of people who actually are beneficiaries of Social Security, which, by the way, they're beneficiaries of money they put into the plan. Now, the question is, is Rick Scott kidding? Or who does he think he's kidding? Scott's own words should resonate during this electoral cycle. Those words, quote, Americans deserve to know what we will do. Indeed. And finally, when a racial slur ends in death, what is the appropriate sentence? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Last May, a 77-year-old man named Von L. Cook walked into a Dunkin' Donut shop in Tampa, Florida. He was upset about the service he received at the store's drive through window. Now, we should say in fairness, what person has not been dissatisfied with the service they have gotten, whether it's at a drive through window, at a counter, or whatever? And not just Dunkin' Donuts, I don't want to pick on them. This happens all the time in restaurants, fast food, and otherwise. The store manager, Corey Pujols, told Cook to leave several times. The last time he told him he called the police. The two men argued, separated by a counter. Then, Cook used a racial slur, which caused Pujols to come through a swinging door and confront him face to face. The store manager told Cook not to use the slur again. When he did, Pujols ended up punching Cook in the jaw, knocking him to the floor. Cook hit his head and died three days later in the hospital. So then the question becomes, what should be the charge against Corey Pujols? It started out as manslaughter. According to the police report, Cook never touched or tried to hit Pujols. Prosecutors decided, however, that Pujols had the intent, had no intent, that is, to cause Cook's death and had no prior criminal record. And here is the ultimate irony. Given that a man was acquitted for shooting another man who threw a bag of popcorn at him in a movie theater, it might be tough to convict Pujols 
Given Florida's controversial stand your ground law, given that reality, Pujols was sentenced after a guilty plea to felony battery to two years house arrest. Sound fair? Probably depends on whether you think the repeated use of a vile racist slur warrants getting physical. I, for one, am certainly a peace-loving person. Absolutely peace-loving person. But for some, there are limits past which you should not push someone. Cook's brother, as you might expect, doesn't think justice was done. He thought Pujol should have gotten five years, not two years house arrest. And that's five years in prison. Regardless, it's an abject lesson in how you conduct yourself on both sides of this racial divide. Be careful what you say, what you repeat, and how you react. Now, I'm old enough to remember when this particular racist slur, and I'm assuming I know what it is, was used almost routinely among whites in this country. And it was used because there was no fear of any retaliation whatsoever. Black folks who retaliated against being called that word risked their own lives without benefit of trial. They could be lynched for striking out against that. Obviously, times have changed. Obviously, there are people who will make the specious argument that, well, uh, black people use the term. What's wrong with me using the term? Well, what's wrong with you using the term is that somebody could punch you in your face for it, as happened here. And this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy all the way around. Nobody wants to see anybody lose their life. You would think a 77-year-old man might have a wee bit more sense. He didn't. And now he's gone. And Corey Pujols, in my judgment, got an appropriate sentence. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.